0: This morning I woke up, and actually every morning this this last week I've woken up, to a gift in my backyard. For those of you that that remember, nine months ago or so, we talked a little bit about my battle against the gophers in our backyard. And over the last nine months, there's been nothing. I had won. At least nothing I could see. And you know how that goes. On the surface, everything can look fine. And as we As we come to the story of the Israelites, we've gone through the first six chapters in an incredible testimony of God's work. We've seen the crossing of the Jordan and setting up memorial stones. We've seen the fall of Jericho. We've seen before that the people made sure their hearts were right with God and they were consecrated before God. And they were ready to serve Him. And and we get done with Jericho and at the end of chapter 6, we see a, a verse that says, Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up his gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And that's how chapter 6 ended. And we see success, we see God's fame, speaking God with Joshua. But all is not well. On the surface... Everything looked great, but beneath the surface, sin was lurking in the camp. And we're going to find that out as we talk this week. So I'll just tell the story. (laughs) I had pictures of gopher mounds. Because this morning, there are three huge gopher mounds in my backyard, where on the surface, everything looked great. And on the surface, I thought we had won. But underneath the surface, this gopher has been digging and, and undermining everything that happens in fact one of the days this week two days ago the gopher during breakfast decided to come out and watch us eat breakfast and he's watching us and so we line up at the slider one two three four five and we're watching him and Susie says he was staring me down my vision isn't the greatest so I just saw this little blob out there she goes oh no he was staring you down and I go out the door to get the hose that particular morning. I've tried traps, I've tried hoses, I've tried all kinds of things this week. And he just watched me get the hose. And as soon as I turn in the water, he's gone. Nothing. And so I know under my backyard, it is completely undermined with these tunnels. I have walked out there and I have stepped in tunnels, I have sprained ankles. And isn't that how sin works? See, it's the visible sins that we take care of. The mounds I can get rid of. But it's the sins that are underneath the surface. The sins that are hidden that are, are somehow less needed to deal with, we think. They're somehow more palatable to us, but not to God. And all undermining our walk with God. They're undermining His church. And the holes will come. See, we can deal with the outside things but do we deal with things like bad attitudes and negative attitudes and judgmental and critical spirits? You know, those financial discrepancies that we're just going to let slide because it's somehow in our favor. The little lies that make us look good or that keep us from looking bad. The sin of not loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The loving idols. Loving things of this world more. The sin of coveting. The sin of not giving God the first part of our time, energy, and our money. Not giving Him the first fruits of everything we have that we can survive with in the church. At least we think we can. And as we come to our text today, we come to one of the most sobering texts in Joshua. As God says, no, there is no such thing as hidden sin. There is no such thing as sin that doesn't affect everyone around you. See, whether it's hidden or it's in the open, it affects everything. Specifically because it blocks God's presence in our lives. He will not hear our prayers. He will not use us as instruments. We become objects of His wrath. But not just individually, but for the church, for the body, as we'll see in the text today, for His people. When we hold on to sin... We are bringing infectious disease into Christ's very body, the church. And so we come to the text today with a seriousness, with a soberness, to see what happened to the children of Israel. And we learn from this God's view of sin, God's approach to dealing with sin, and how serious we should take sin. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. We'll be starting at verse 1. Then we'll just talk about Ai, just like we did with Jericho. We want to start by giving us a little bit of history of the city that we're talking about. And if you remember, Jericho was right in the middle of the land. Okay, So the, the children of Israel came up on the eastern side of the Jordan, crossed the Jordan in the, in the middle of the land, took Jericho, which was the gateway city, to the rest of the country. Now, out of Jericho, and if you picture the map in your head, out of Jericho to the west, there were three main routes into the mountains. And remember the picture last week? Jericho's down in the Rift Valley, be below sea level. And right up from Jericho, you come into the mountains, which eventually is Jerusalem, but it's the mountainous area that goes up and down Israel. And Ai is right in the middle of that mountainous region. It really is is brilliant strategically because it separates the northern region from the southern region. It divides them. And out of Jericho, there are three main roads going west. The, the um, southwestern one would go to Jerusalem. And we know there was a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. We talked about that last week. Remember the Good Samaritan and the robber? He was on that road. Then to the north, there was a, a northwestern road that would go to the northern part of the land and, and a major trade route there. This road to Ai was the one due west out of Jericho, and it went up into the mountains about 15 miles from Jericho, so not a long way, and we go from below sea level to about 1,700 feet in elevation, so in these 15 miles, you get a pretty good climb, and Ai was located probably on the north-south trade route in the mountain region. So this was an important area to take. You take this, you cut off supplies, you have a launching point for the rest of the conquest. And so it made a lot of sense to go to AI next. The name AI, interestingly enough, means ruin. And we, we will see next week's story that that happens to AI. But not this week. This week we have a much different scene. And so let's look at verse 1. And verse two, the key verse to understand the whole chapter. The, the narrator here, he breaks with, with some of building, and right from the start, right from verse 1, says this is the point of the chapter, so you don't miss it. And actually the last verse of the chapter, he's going to come back to it. And in verse 1 we read, but, and it starts with that word but, and I'd understand that because that's in contrast to the success at Jericho. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And right from the start, we see a very sobering verse. When you read a verse that says the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel, again, I would underline that or highlight that if you don't mind writing in your Bibles. Because that's the key phrase to understanding the rest of this chapter. Now if you remember the devoted things, we talked about that in Joshua chapter 6. And if you look back at Joshua 6.18, but you, and this is the command to the people as they were, were taking Jericho but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. We talked about that last week. Harem. That these were the things that God said, do not take them, do not touch them, destroy every living thing. The precious metals bring into my house. They are mine. They are devoted to me. Because of their sin, because of my holiness, I am judging them. And so the the command is very clear in verse 18 but you keep yourselves from these things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. And what that's saying is, those are devoted to Me. If you take them, and you take and you steal from Me those things that I have, I have decided to be should be destroyed, then you get the same punishment. And you... Are devoted to destruction. So this was in the chapter before. And verse 1 of chapter 7, the first thing it says, they broke faith. They took those things. And we see several things out of this verse that's understanding the chapter. The first is that the whole nation is affected by one man. Look at, at the, the terms that are used, but the people of Israel broke faith. In regard to the devoted things, for Achan the son of Carmi, and so we have the people of Israel indicted here because of one man's action, because of Achan. And you read on, and it says they took this man took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against whom? The people of Israel. And so we see the whole nation is affected by this one man's sin. We're going to see that more in the next few verses. But really, this verse is describing a betrayal on two levels. Because God's righteous anger burns at sin as it is betrayal. Point number one. God's righteous anger burns at sin as it is betrayal. And the two areas that we see betrayal in is the first is it betrays a covenant relationship. betrays a covenant relationship. The first phrase there, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. That word for broke faith is a word that is used of a wife's adultery. It's used of betrayal of marriage vows. In Numbers 5.12, the same word is used. Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, and it goes on to describe that she sleeps with other men... That's what it meant to break faith, to break a covenant, to betray, to commit adultery. That's the word God is choosing to use about Israel's sin. They have broken faith with me. They have betrayed my covenant. Remember his covenant is I will give you the land, but in Joshua 1 it says you will obey my commandments. And it was a two-way street. This was more than just a simple theft. This was more than taking a few items when he wasn't supposed to. This was a betrayal of God Almighty and the covenant and relationship that he had set up. That helps us understand the depth of sin. To take sin seriously. It is so easy to sort of just write off sin as some some light thing and I just ask forgiveness. But think about the word that's used here. Think about a betrayal of marriage vows. Is that easy to get past? Is that light? No. But that is what we do when we sin against God. You see, the people of Israel were under covenant, but we're under covenant too. It's a new covenant. In Luke 22, 20 and 21, as Jesus is, is having the Lord's Supper with His disciples, and it's what we say as we celebrate communion together each month, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. And we see Jesus talking to Judas and saying, you are betraying this covenant. And Jesus, through his blood on the cross, has bought us, has redeemed us, has paid for our sins. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters. God has adopted us into His family. That's covenant relationship. And when we sin, we spit in the face of that relationship. We break that relationship. Our sin is always a betrayal of the relationship that Jesus paid for with His blood. That's not a light thing. The people of Israel broke faith. They committed adultery in regard to the devoted things. The second way that they betrayed was they betrayed God's holiness. Their sin betrays God's holiness. This has to do with the devoted things, the harem, that they were supposed to set apart for God, that were to be holy for God. And they took that, and Achan took that and made it ordinary, made it his. He stole from God. And that betrayed God's holiness. His instruction what was devoted to him. We saw that in Deuteronomy 20. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Then he lists the people. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God holiness that we sang about this morning as we sang holy, holy, holy is the very character and nature of God. And when we sin, we betray that. The point in verse 1, the point of the chapter, the point of the story, God's righteous anger burns at sin as it is betrayal of Him. Don't take it lightly. God doesn't. So we move on to verses 2-5. through And this section is the defeat. And this, this tells what happens with Ai. Sin has costly consequences to the whole body. Sin has costly consequences to the whole body. Let's read verses 2-5. through five. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, Ai which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the people went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people, speaking of Israel, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And so they're going up to Ai. They spy it out. And this is a city that is smaller than Jericho. They had just seen God do an incredible thing at Jericho and and take the city, this fortress. They come to the fortress of Ai. About 12,000 people we'll see in the next chapter. And the spies are like, this is easy. Send maybe two or 3,000 men. We've got this. And they go up. And they get defeated, some are killed, and they flee. And we see from verse one that this is about sin. And the consequences for sin are staggering, and it affects the whole nation. Some of the consequences, one is that 36 men died and the rest fled. Loss of life. Defeat in battle. That's 36 more than died at Jericho. And they run and they get to this, this um, riverbed, this wadi, and they hide there or they, and, and they're chased as far as that. But the second effect you see in verse 5, the people were disheartened. The people were disheartened. And when there's sin in the camp, when there's sin in the body of Christ, it does affect others. It affects our ability to do God's work. We see defeat there. It affects our hearts. They melted, it says, and became as water. Same phrase that Rahab used about the Canaanites. And so, because of sin in the camp, because they have taken Haram, what is devoted to God, (coughs) they've become like the Canaanites. And God has removed his protection from them, his fighting for them, And their hearts are now melting. The cost of sin is always higher than just what happens to you or I. And we think that sin is just about me. And I'm the only one that has to deal with the consequences. And I've heard people argue, well, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, I should be allowed to do whatever I want. Sin always hurts other people. It never affects just me. Tell that. That, it, that it, it only affects yourself. Tell that to the 36 families that lost loved ones at A.I. No one sins in isolation. And that's an important point. No one sins in isolation. There is no such thing as an individual sin in the church. Whether it's visible or not, your sin, my sin, affects everyone else in this room. And that's one of the lessons from the Israelites at A.I. There's a corporateness. God looks at his body and wants a pure and undefiled body. And what you or I do affects each other. Never underestimate the sin of one person, the damage it can do to the body. I mean, think about this. We understand this, right? I I, I chose not to take volunteers for this, but if I was to take a hammer and say, I'm just going to hit your toe... I'm just going to hit your toe as hard as I can. Does that affect the rest of your body? Now keep in mind in 1 Corinthians, how does God describe his church? As his body, each of us are different members. What you do, what I do, affects the others that are here. David disobeyed God and took an unauthorized census and 70,000 people died. Jonah disobeyed God and ran, and a ship and crew almost sank. Instead, they just lost everything. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5, discipline the man committing incest because he's defiling the whole church. We could go on and on and on. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And this is Paul talking to the church that has allowed sin to go unpunished. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Never underestimate the damage one person's sin can do to the body. It's one of the lessons from this story couple of other interesting observations now as we look at these verses keep in mind the cause of the defeat is in one is their sin but a couple of other things we see is that they they this time they worried more about strategy than heart prep remember last time before jericho they stopped and made sure they were right with god before the crossing of the jordan consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you'll see god do great things we don't see that at ai we see a self-confidence we see, we've got this. And I think that's part of, when there's sin in the camp, we lose our dependence on God. See, they had the numbers. We know from numbers 26,51, they had over 600,000 fighting men in their army. A little bit overmatched for AI, so let's just send two or 3,000. It's a reminder to us that as spiritual leaders, those that are leaders here, any decision we make, we need to go to God first in prayer. For guidance, but also prayer of confession to make sure we're right with him. Because if we're not right with God, he's not working here. At least not through us. He'll do his work a different way. Wiersbe in his commentary says, what Israel needed was God confidence, not Self-confidence. So as we look at this text, as we look at these verses, we see the defeat that sin has costly consequences to the whole body. And then in verses 6 through 9, we see Joshua's response, which I've called the lament. He comes to God and, and, and he pours out his heart to God. And so this is the lament. Joshua goes to God, but he asks the wrong question. And when we have disaster in our lives, when we have failure in our lives, we often go to God with the wrong questions. Let's see what he did. In verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. Remember, the ark of the Lord represents his presence. Until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. That was a sign of mourning, of grieving. They started right remorse is the right start and they come and they tear their clothes (coughs) and bow before god almighty but then in verse seven we see what he says and it's the wrong conclusion so we have the right start and the wrong conclusion and joshua said alas oh lord god some of your versions say sovereign lord there right or sovereign god and, and the words for O Lord God, it's Adonai, um, Yahweh. And Adonai meaning Lord or Sovereign or one that's in control. And then Yahweh meaning God. And so he says, O oh God, you are sovereign. Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. That sounds familiar. Wish we were in Egypt. O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your na- our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And so he starts right with the grief, but this is the wrong conclusion. It's a flawed interpretation of the events. The, the, the questions go something like this. God, why would you let this happen? We would have been better off where we were. We're disgraced. We ran. We will be destroyed. And now what will people say about you? And in a sense, he's blaming God rather than looking at self. It's a crisis of theology. We talk about the sovereignty of God and we believe God is sovereign, but we also hold to the responsibility of man. Because God does not force you or I to sin. And we must hold both together. Both are scriptural. We cannot abandon one for the other. And here Joshua is holding to the sovereignty of God and he's forgotten the responsibility of man. Doesn't even ask the question. But man is responsible for his sin. God is sovereign, but we choose to sin and we will be punished for that sin must be paid for and and as we read this section you wonder sometimes and and in the heat of grief you you can understand where he's coming from but there's some selective memory here I, I keep thinking don't you remember Jericho just a few days ago God was with you don't you remember the Jordan the pile of stones you made that helps you remember that God is mighty and does miraculous things Turn back to Joshua 1, 5-9. At the beginning, just a few weeks earlier, God says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land I swore to their fathers to give them. And and if you just remember those verses, I think Joshua's lament is right. What are you doing? But God goes on, only be strong in verse 7 and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. That you may have good success wherever you go. And that verse should have caused the elders and Joshua to say, what have we done? we have turned either to the right or to the left from God's commands. But it's interesting in in Joshua's lament at the end, in the last phrase of verse 9, I call this unrealized truth. We have a, a good start. We have a mistake in the middle, a wrong conclusion, but at the end, unrealized truth because he says, and what will you do for your great name? What will you do for your glory, for your fame, for your reputation? And inadvertently, Joshua hit on the truth. Because the truth is, God's glory, his holiness, his fame, his reputation must deal with sin. To let sin go unchecked would be a violation of his name and his fame. And so he hit on a truth. And it's good that he's concerned about God's glory. But God now has to do some training. And so in this moment of difficulty, in this moment of failure, Joshua goes to God, rightfully so, but then challenges God. Why have you done this? And misses the point. And it's so easy to do. In leadership, you've heard me talk about the window and the mirror, right? I don't know if you remember that. And in leadership, when something goes wrong, sometimes the natural response is to look out the window, look at the people, look at God, and say, oh, look what they've done. It's their fault. Or they need to change this. Or God, what have you done? Whereas good servant leadership looks at the mirror first and says, am I right with God? What is my part in this? What have I done? And God's about to to teach that to Joshua. He's about to have him look at themselves. Look at himself. And he'll defend his honor and defend his glory. Difficulties come for all kinds of reasons. In this case, it was sin. Sometimes difficulties come just because we live in a fallen Genesis 3 world. Sometimes difficulties come to teach us, to mature us. Sometimes difficulties come as a result of someone else's sin. And we're caught up in the the, um, ripples of that. But no matter what the reason, our first step is to go to God with humility and to say, what do you want me to learn? How do you want to use this for your glory? To submit ourselves to God and put ourselves on his grace, on his mercy, and see what he says. So the next five verses, 10 through 15, the next six verses is the diagnosis. This is where we get to hear what God says. The diagnosis, God will not be with his people when there is sin in the camp. So get up and remove it. God will not be with his people when there is sin in the camp. So get up and remove it. In verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. And I would underline that too. I have it bold in my notes. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? And by God's response, you see a little bit of how he's taking what Joshua is saying. He's like, get up. This isn't about me wronging you. This is about you wronging me. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Do you, do you feel the, the, that verse building as I read it? And that's what's happening. There are six verbs here that all describe in increasing intensity what Israel has done. And it starts with the broad. Israel has sinned, which means to miss the mark. They have transgressed my covenant. They have crossed the line that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. One commentator said the Hebrew there, you could read, they did this. And they even did this. And they even did this. And they even did this. Do you get the idea that God is upset? And he's, he's telling that to Joshua. And then verse 12 is, I think, one of the most chilling verses in this chapter and one that we need to take to heart as his people. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. He's saying they won't win. They will fail because I am not with them. They cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction, honoring faithfully what he, he said in the last chapter. You take what's devoted, you become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among us. When God says, I will be with you no more unless you do this, what do you do? You get up as fast as you can and you do what God said. Because we don't want to live life without his presence. Without his mighty hand working on our behalf. Doing his work through us. I read that verse over and over and it sends chills down my back because God is that serious about sin. See, he didn't have a double standard toward the Canaanites, toward his destruction of the Canaanites. They were devoted for destruction because they were violating God's holiness. His people do the same thing and they're devoted for destruction. Either obey harem or become harem. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, the psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And we see a picture here of a people that have hidden sin in their camp and God's response is one that is so serious. We as a church at the beginning of Joshua said that we want to do God's work. We want to be used by God. And the first six chapters have been great illustrations of how that happens. But now in this chapter and then in a couple chapters to come, we're going to see some obstacles that get in the way. And church, one of the obstacles, the first one mentioned here, is that if there is sin in the camp, then God's presence will not be part of that work. And it doesn't matter if it's visible. It doesn't matter whether it's known. God is concerned about His holiness, Because even hidden sin will start to pull us down as a church, will tear us apart from a love of God and from his work. Sobering message? Oh yeah. I was reading about an African tribe and and the way that they hunt ducks. They like to eat duck. But the problem is every time you walk up to a duck, it flies away. And so they had a river out by, a, a slow moving river out by their camp and what they, and the ducks always congregated there. And what they decided to do is they'd go upstream and they'd put a pumpkin in the water. And they'd float the pumpkin down and it would float down. And the first time they did this, the ducks just all scattered and flew away. Second time, they scattered, but then they came back a little sooner. Third time, fourth time, and finally these pumpkins kept coming and the ducks didn't care about them anymore. The, the pumpkins would just float right through their, their little cluster. So then the villagers, they would hollow out a pumpkin and put it over their head and get in the water where you only saw the pumpkin. You see where this is going, right? And they'd go walking down or swimming down. They'd get right in the middle of the ducks and then from underneath the water they'd start plucking them down. And they had roast duck that night think about that with hidden sin when we allow hidden sin in the camp it's like those pumpkins and we get so used to it and, and and we don't care about it and satan starts to pluck us down under the water one by one god will not be with his people when there's sin in the camp so get up and remove it it's that serious So in verse 13, we see God's command again, get up, consecrate to the, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in their midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. He's saying you will fail until you deal with sin. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Sin is outrageous. It is serious. It betrays our relationship with God. It betrays His holiness. And so God is saying it must be dealt with. This is why we as a church practice church discipline. Going back to that 1 Corinthians 5 verse, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And so we as a church are to confront sin in our midst. Because it is directly tied to God's work through his people. And yes, there's been there have been churches that have abused that and gone too far, but far more churches have completely ignored that and ignored sin and turned a back to it and have been rendered ineffective in God's work. My prayer for village is that we are not ineffective that we are powerfully moving forward with God's work, with sharing the gospel, with reaching this neighborhood, this community here, with reaching every one of your communities for Christ, with building families that are have that as their focus. But we will fail if we don't deal with the sin issue. Now The temptation on a a talk like that can be to start looking around and saying, I know where there's some sin in the camp. I know where we should start. I'm not going to name names. Because the message here is not to start looking around and blaming others. We just saw that with Joshua. The message here is to start looking inside and saying, is it me? Do I have sin that's unconfessed? Am I doing something that is harming the work of this whole body? My prayer today is that we come out of this text seeing sin as serious, but willing to get up and do something about it in our own lives for the sake of God's work. The last section there, the cleansing, God's justice demands payment for sin. God's justice demands payment for sin. Starting at verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near the household man by man and Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken very specific of what tribe he is, that he's part of the nation. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And we see two pairs of instructions there. Give glory to God. Give praise to him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See, God's fame his glory is violated when we sin, and so when we confess our sin, when we come to Him and say, you are right and I am wrong, we are bringing glory to Him. It's very interesting that Achan still hasn't done this. He has to be caught. He has to come out with his hands up and be forced to confess. This is not a repentant man. This is a captured man. Tell me what you have done, and do not hide it. And Achan answered Joshua, Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with silver underneath. Very interesting sequence. I saw, I coveted, I took, I hid. And that's a sequence that describes so much of our sin. I saw something I wanted, something I delighted in. I took it. I hid it. Turn with me just real quickly to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We see the story of Eve being tempted. See if you see that same sequence, starting at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They saw, they desired, or they coveted, they took, and they hid. Think about that with our sin. The thing is, with God, there is no such thing as hidden sin, there is no such thing as sin that we somehow keep out of His eyes. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And we go on to continue reading in Joshua chapter 7. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them out before the Lord, possibly before the Ark of the Covenant. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And we see God judging Achan and his family and everything he had. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. And then you see in verse 26 the conclusion of verse 1. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is the Valley of Achor. And this is sobering because it is serious, sobering judgment on sin. Many have thought, well, the family must have known because it was buried there and they probably helped out with that. Maybe, maybe not. But Achan stood for his family and all that had touched that sin, all that had been part of that, had to be judged. Sin must be paid for. God's justice demands it. His righteousness demands it. The same is true today. Every sin you and I commit must be paid for. The difference is our Lord and Savior sent His Son to hang on the cross and shed His blood and give His life to pay for our sin. And we can look back on that and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience His forgiveness. But sin must be paid for. It's a serious offense. It's betrayal against an almighty God. Dale Ralph Davis writes this, the testimony of Joshua 7 is that we cannot treat cancer with vitamin pills. It requires radical surgery. Church, sin is not just an anemia that we treat with some sort of peel, pill. It is a disease that will cost us our spiritual lives unless we have surgery and deal with it. Aiken paid the price. He ended up with a pile of stones on top of his family, his grave. Again, it says, to this day. And so it's a memorial. A few weeks ago, we saw the pile of stones after the crossing of the Jordan that was a memorial to God's work And here we see another pile of stones that was a testimony to God's wrath and His view on sin and to His holiness. That every time they walked by, they would be reminded of God's holiness. Achan was an Israelite. He acted unfaithfully to God and was destroyed. Rahab was a Canaanite. She acted with faith to God and was brought into the the, brought into Israel and was saved. The question is, what is our heart for God? Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to come to Him? Are we willing to deal with sin in our midst? I'd like to spend a few moments where we pause and we just take some personal time between us and God, knowing that my sin can affect. All around me can affect God's work here. Your sin can. And let's pause and let's remember our God and go to him and say, Oh God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of understanding the words that I think Joshua and the elders should have come to God with in the first place. And right now, let's spend some time confessing that. Just privately, you and God. But remember 1 Peter 2 as well. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus died to be a payment for our sins. He died our soul to save i like to just bow our heads. I'll start with prayer and then just a time of silence and then we'll sing together as we end our service. Lord God, we are sobered by this chapter that showed a defeat of your people and the root cause being sin. And we are challenged, God, as a church to make sure we don't have that same root cause in our midst to come to you and ask for your forgiveness, ask for your cleansing, ask for you to reveal whatever might be there. Lord, I pray for our church that if there is anything standing in the way of us winning souls for you, that you would deal with it right here and right now. That you would do whatever it takes to purify your church, no matter how hard it is, no matter how costly, no matter how much it hurts. May we be a people submitted in love to you, that then your hand can work through to do mighty things for you. Help us not to be aching, but to deal with it and to be right with you.